Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. Continuing our series on Britain's armed forces over the last 200 years, Professor Jeremy Black, author of Insurgency and Counterinsurgency, A Global History, talks to the critics' deputy editor, Graham Stewart, about how Britain's armed forces handled nationalist protests and uprisings from the Mediterranean and Middle East to Africa and Southeast Asia during the 1950s and 60s. Professor Black, in the last edition of Black's History Week, we were discussing primarily uh, the British Armed Forces' evolution into a fighting force against uh, the Soviet Union. Um, In this episode, uh, we are going to focus upon um, the British Armed Forces' global interests, particularly fighting against emergent nationalist organisations, some of which were inspired uh, by Uh, Marxist-Leninism, but uh, some of which had more uh, native origins. I wonder if you can set the scene for this period of uh, the 1950s, not just in terms of Britain's wars of decolonization, but also what other European powers, particularly the French in Algeria and Vietnam, were experiencing and how their experience affected Britain. Well, I think context, as you say, is crucial because one of the great mistakes is to um, analyse wars on their own without looking as to the degree to which other wars at the same time or wars that were similar uh, suggest possibly different different um, sort of logics or different causations. So as you correctly note, the other European colonial powers that hadn't already lost their overseas empires, and obviously the German overseas empire ceases in 1918, Um, the Italian overseas empire ceases in 1942-1943. So what you're left with are um, a number of overseas empires. I mean, some you could argue continue to the present day. Denmark continues to have um, uh, possessions across, across the North Atlantic. Um, but um, in, re- in terms of Britain, the Dutch, the French, the Portuguese and the Spaniards, the period from 1945 to 1976 sees the end of the bulk of their overseas territorial possessions. I mean, obviously Britain still has some to this day, as does France, um, but sees the bulk, the end of the bulk of their overseas territorial uh, possessions. Um, and in part, that's due to conflict. It's not only due to conflict, but in part, that's due to conflict. And insofar as it is due to conflict, you could argue it's the period in global history of the largest uh, change of control over territory. Now, um, the um, the degree to which this should be seen as a failure of Western um, warfare is a problematic uh, because you could argue, as we've already suggested, that the prime challenge to the Western powers was the potential um, launching of World War III in Europe, and that in contrast to that, 
uh, quite frankly, what happened in uh, colonies which were mostly a cost and which to many seemed anachronistic was of relatively minor consequence. And, you know, you can play that through quite interestingly. You could argue that for de Gaulle, the um, decision to embark on the force de frappe, the, um, the uh, French nuclear force meant that it was not of, of any consequence anymore to go on holding on to Algeria, which had been a major source of manpower for the French army, and so on and so forth. So you shouldn't necessarily see these conflicts as failures, but that then does not mean that they were not strains which could lead to a change of policy at the, in the metropole, in the central the central government. And that complexity is something I've tried to wrestle with in a number of works. Um, and I'm rather loath to give a sort of an answer which makes everything seem on one side or the other. Well, I, um, I understand that uh, desire to uh, avoid giving a, you know, a comprehensive answer which appears to group everything in one position. And I, I wonder with regard to the British situation, whether one should see every possession, every colony, every settlement, every outpost on its own terms, or is there an overarching sense that actually the process of decolonization and resisting some of the uh, national independence movements was or should be seen as part of the larger struggle against the spread of communism, and, and that greater global struggle uh, was what led the British to fight against nationalist movements? Well, there is certainly that dimension to it, though, for example, if you're looking at the Mau Mau in Kenya, I'm not sure that it's helpful to locate that primarily in terms of the Cold War. Um, but no, you're absolutely right. I mean, that is more pertinent, for example, if you're looking at the Malaya so-called emergency. Conflicts that were nationalistic were not necessarily um, always helpfully considered in a Cold War context. So the confrontation with Indonesia in 1963 to 66, although the Indonesian government before it was overthrown had been steering towards the communist powers, I don't think that that should primarily uh, be seen as a Cold War struggle, though others may take a different viewpoint. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right that um, concerns about a wider strategic and political um, focus could play a role. That strategic and political focus in part could be a matter of opposition to uh, what was seen as hostile sponsoring powers. So in the case of the Aden crisis, a concern about, about the uh, policies underlying Colonel Nasser's support for the uh, rebels in, in South Yemen. Um, but the logic of holding on to specific colonies could also be geopolitical. So, for example, Aden has consequence if you think uh, that Britain should be an Indian Ocean power 
irrespective of whether the Suez Canal is still going to be a significant route. Once you decide that Britain is not going to be an east of Suez power, then Aden doesn't have much particular consequence. Um, and again, in some parts of the world, you could say that the difficulty for the British was not so much in sustaining British imperial rule, but it's finding somebody acceptable to hand over empire to. And as you will know, there were efforts um, in the West Indies, in what becomes Malaysia, in Central Africa, in Southwest uh, Arabia, in the what the Aden Protectorate, um, to create um, uh, sort of successor systems which the British would regard as friendly and acceptable. And you can put that as part of an overla overlapping procedure and process in which at one level you have the Commonwealth doing that as the continuation of empire. On another level, you have the negotiation of wide-ranging regional pacts, um, CETO in Southeast Asia and CENTO um, in, uh, in um, you know, uh, South Asia, um, but without these necessarily being British colonies. So in part, it's a, a matter of the succession to the British Empire. And as you may know, I mean, I've noticed I've been sent the page proofs of a particularly stupid book on World War II, which argues that this is just yet a, you know, as if this was an original approach that argues that it was an imperial war. Well, the notion that World War II was in part a struggle, a war of succession for the British Empire is not exactly new. Um, uh, although obviously authors are rather prone to imagine that they have invented ideas. Um, so to a degree, that is the problem for the British. It's not that they particularly wish to hang on to imperial possessions, what still less to have to defend them uh, with all the costs, difficulties and uncertainties that that entails, not least as a distraction from issues of confrontation in Europe and issues of expenditure on the, uh, on the economy and such like of the British Isles. But... But um, I think it's fair to say that um, the, um, the logic that is often presented of these imperial wars is based on an anachronistic view of Britain as if it was simply trying to um, have a, um, as it were, a continuation of 1880s imperialism, 1880s, 1890s imperialism. Well, if we look at, at some of these uh, confrontations um, individually and on their own terms, if we start in the Mediterranean and uh, we start with the Cypriot independence campaign, uh, British involvement there, and we're talking about the period between 1955 and 1959, British involvement there, was that a case of, as you described it earlier, trying to find the right uh, friendly person to pass power on to? Well, uh, I think in the case of Cyprus, um, there are a number of different issues entailed. One, Cyprus was a base for Britain against the Soviet Union during the Cold War. 
Um, if you look at Cold War military planning, as one should do if one's looking at this broader question of, of the end of empire, you will know that uh, the British planned to bomb um, southern Russia and Ukraine, the economic regions of the Donbass, um, with Canberra bombers flying out of Cyprus. The idea was they would fly over our NATO ally, um, Turkey, and that then they would over, uh, cross the Black Sea, and that this was much closer route to vulnerable Soviet targets than actually flying from Britain. Um, so Cyprus had value for that. Cyprus also, of course, was a military base in the eastern Mediterranean, which was seen to compensate for the loss of Egypt as a base, uh, the Suez Canal as a base. Um, so Cyprus has a part in the logic of, um, of NATO and of Britain as a Mediterranean power, rather than retaining any position in terms of Britain having a, you know, on the alignment to, to India. Now, within Cyprus itself, I mean, you, you referred to a Cypriot independence movement, you're obviously thinking of AOKA, but of course, that's a Greek Cypriot independence movement, as you will know, one of the grave problems facing the British a problem somewhat similar to what they'd encountered in Palestine, Israel in the late 40s and India, Pakistan in the late 40s, um, was that there is more than one um, ethnic, if you wish to use that term, community in Cyprus. There are also Turkish Cypriots. And this puts the British in a difficult position. Um, they, you know, that, that is, um, it's not clear how there would be an adequate transition to a body that was going to keep civil peace there readily. And I think it's fair to say um, that that has remained a problem to the present day. Uh, it lay behind the Turkish invasion of uh, Northern Cyprus in 1974, and it's led to problems that have lasted to the present day. Cyprus itself, was militarily less difficult for the British than, uh, shall we say, either Kenya or Malaya. Um, you do not have the extensive um, uh, forest cover. Uh, you have a much smaller area. Um, and although Aoka, as you will know, I mean, they sort of specialized in shot shooting people in the back and other similar terrorist activities. Um, the British by then had a certain amount of experience at dealing with, uh, with that. The major problem was the difficulty uh, posed for the British by the extent to which Aoka murdered uh, other Greek Cypriots, I mean, they murdered Turkish Cypriots as well, they murdered British people as well, but in particular, their rate of murder of Greek Cypriots meant that they were able to terrorize out other or lessen other Greek Cypriot options. And that was a problem for Britain. And it meant that Aoka could be checked, but it couldn't be destroyed and was therefore not deprived of its means of regeneration. Was um, uh, British operations learning from each other um, in, in Cyprus, in Aden, in, um, in Malaya? Uh, were they adopting similar 
anti-insurgency techniques uh, or was each seen as an independent theater of operations with unique circumstances? No, the, that's a very good question. The British did learn considerably and they deploy, they have a number of key commanders and advisors, people like um, Hugh Stockwell or Robert Thompson, uh, both of them in Malaya, who'd had experience of counterinsurgency or irregular warfare. And I mentioned last time Frank Kitson as a another example. I was privileged to have lunch with uh, General Kitson twice in recent years, and he's still, still then, uh, full command of his um, of his uh, mental acuity, which I think it always characterised him. Anyway, um, I think that there was obviously the opportunity of learning, but the circumstances are different. So, so in Cyprus, air power is much more. Uh, useful because the British had local bases, Cyprus is smaller, you don't have um, you don't have the tree cover. but nevertheless, the British had developed effective techniques which served them pretty well. I mean, but you've got the standard problem with insurgencies, which is that you can usually stop the insurgents winning. What you can't necessarily do is stop insurgency. It's the same as terrorism. I mean, if you say to your public, we will stop terrorism, you're bound to lose because all the terrorists have to do is pick a weak target, let off bombs, and then they're still part of the equation. If you say, we're going to do our best to thrash these people, there will go on being terrorism, but let me assure you, uh, we will do our best to kill them, um, you are actually more likely to have a fair rate of success. So it rather depends upon what, off what you're offering as your option. Well, I'd like to turn to obviously the, 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 you know, the, what's often seen as a pivotal event and not just for the Britain's armed forces, but for Britain's British strategic uh, operations, and, and that is the, the Suez Crisis of 1956. Obviously, it was a, a, a bloody nose and a disaster in large part because of the American diplomatic and economic pressure. But putting that to one side for a moment, how, from a purely military operation, how well did the British armed forces perform? Oh, that's an excellent question. Yes and no. I mean, there were some terrible uh, um, mistakes. I think delay was the most serious one, which gave you know the opportunities for the political equation to unravel. So delay was a really serious one. On the other hand, they were successful in many of the tactical and operational issues in gaining air superiority, in landing troops, in successfully uh, using air landing techniques, which were not then well developed. Um, so to, and of course, in fighting their way down the canal against uh, opposition. So um, the um, I think it was strategically well. I mean, you know, it's easy for us to say it was a strategic blunder because it didn't work. Um, you're always better if you wish to topple a hostile regime, as the Americans showed in. Uh, in Iran in the early 50s and in Indonesia in the mid 60s, if you don't send troops in, if you, as it were, uh, look for 
division and dissension within the system and seek to exploit that. And that was what the British had been thinking they were trying to do. Uh, but they didn't do it well enough and they relied too much on their own armed forces. And I think it's fair to say that the, that the trilateral plot of Britain, France and Israel was overly complex and poorly conceived. Would it be right to say there was a, a clear line of priorities in terms of British strategic policy, which put um, the continental commitment to the NATO commitment in Europe and the North Atlantic first, uh, the Middle East second, uh, Southeast Asia third, uh, and Africa fourth? Or actually, firstly, what was that level of prioritizing um, never explicit or, or indeed am, am I wrong to even put it in that order? No I don't think you're wrong I think that um, I think that's a you know a, a useful um, set way to start thinking about it I, I, I would suggest that as on previous occasions when we've spoken one needs to allow for differences between the services that um, the Navy, which was important, still important. I think it's fair to say that the Navy was perceived as losing the political battle over the aircraft carriers in east of Suez in the 60s and thereafter became less consequential. But that the Navy um, had a difference, a different, as it were, strategic geography to um, to that of the army. And I think it's fair to say that the, um, the Navy and the army and the Air Force could agree on the significance of home defense and they could agree on the significance of meeting NATO commitments. But once you move beyond those, then there were important differences between them. And these differences reflect both what you might call self-interest, if you wish to use that term, but also I would say it reflects a particular uh, notion of threat environments, uh, which are necessarily specific, uh, which are dynamic because they're affected by what are um, uh, are, as it were, assumed opponents might be doing, what our uh, assumed allies wish us to do, what we wish to do, uh, all of those are dynamic. And then on top of that, as with the development of submarine-based uh, intercontinental missiles, um, there is also the dynamism of military technology. To what extent did the uh, retreat east of Aden uh, in particular, the um, uh, closure of the Royal Naval Base in Singapore. To what extent was that a reflection of the build-up of American firepower in Asia-Pacific as uh, part of operations in Vietnam? Without the Vietnamese War, would the Royal Navy in particular have continued to have a significant um, presence in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific, or actually was it a, a case of economics involving a, a trimming of defence budgets 
which, which made um, the, the Far Eastern posting a, an inevitable cut. Right. Well, that's, <laughs> I think that's a brilliant question. I mean, I mean, there's a lot there to unpick. Um, well, first of all, I don't know what would have happened but for the Vietnam commitment. I think what one can fairly say is that in 1964, when Harold Wilson became prime minister, there were significant British forces east of Suez, uh, in Aden, um, in Southeast Asia, and in fact taking an active role and a successful role in the Indonesian confrontation, so fighting Indonesia uh, on behalf of Malaysia. Um, and there were, you know, British military agreements um, in the in the Persian Gulf. So Britain was a significant military power in that region. Um, and of course, the new prime minister um, did not see himself as an isolationist. In fact, the exact opposite. I mean, Harold Wilson, with a sort of, you know, uh, in the words of one marvellous journalist, a Yorkshire Walter Mitty, um, Har Harold Wilson um, uh, wanted to solve, as you may know, the India-Pakistan War of 65. He wanted to solve the Vietnam War. He thought he could solve uh, the Rhodesian UDI. He saw himself as a great figure. And in 1964, he had said, uh, and 1964 is a period or a year in which there's a brief Chinese attack on, um, uh, on India. He had um, um, said Britain's frontiers are still on the Himalayas. And indeed, if you look at the original fire plans of British nuclear submarines, so this is before they become operational, but they'd already drawn up the fire plans. Um, the assumption was that always one nuclear submarine, but probably or possibly two, would be on deployment in the Indian Ocean and that it would be planned that they would protect um, India from uh, Chinese forces invading over the uh, Himalayas. The idea was that they would fire their missiles at um, the major Himalayan passes. So I think it's fair to say that Wilson, when he came into power, did not see himself as pulling out. And I would, I would think that if you want to play the counterfactuals, I'm not saying you shouldn't, I'm interested in counterfactuals, but I think one needs to handle them cautiously. I would say it's not so much Vietnam and the American commitment there that leads to um, the, uh, the British, as it were, being redundant, uh, but three other factors need to be taken into account. One, um, that the toppling of the uh, sort of extreme nationalist regime in Indonesia and the subsequent ending of the Indonesian confrontation, the Malayan confrontation, means that Britain no longer needs or requires a major military commitment in Southeast Asia. I think that's very important. I think that tends to be underplayed. Uh, at 66, we're really talking about there. Secondly, as you know, there was, as you correctly mentioned, a financial crisis. The Labour government has come in uh, with uh, unrealistic assumptions and, I mean, you know, the fiscal realities come in. Um, and so that that has a significant factor. Number three, 
the pullout from east of Suez is taken despite the Americans not wanting the British to do that. Because uh, what this does is increase American anxieties about what is happening. And indeed, um, these anxieties are strengthened by um, the um, uh, Soviet rearming of um, uh, Syria and Egypt after the Six Day War by a sense that um, the Arab world is volatile and moving in a hostile direction. Um, and so the Americans are not very pleased with the British over that. Um, so I would not see it as part of a sort of seamless flow from one uh, great Western power to another. I don't think um, that uh, that really is a terribly helpful um, uh, way to do it. Um, what I would say is that from the army's point of view, moving back and focusing on Europe suited them enormously. Um, and um, you have to look, as indeed you have with the American army after Vietnam, the American army after Vietnam, the generals who, are, who come to the fore are very much keen on um, military commitments in Europe as part of NATO, and many of them are interested in large-scale tank uh, warfare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they don't want to fight another war again like Vietnam. And the problem you could argue with that is that it doesn't help them to be best prepared for some of the situations that to, are to have emerged in the last quarter century. Uh, the British um, also, the um, you've got generals who are uh, more interested in the idea of conflict in Europe. And then again, if you want to, you've got to look at this in a multifaceted fashion. France leaving the NATO command structure contributes to a sense that Britain ought to be playing a stronger role in Western Europe, and that's significant, as does American pressure during the Vietnam War to move troops and naval forces out of Germany and the Mediterranean. So there is a European dimension there. And if you wish to, uh, we could discuss this on another occasion, you could link that to the desire first of Wilson and then of Heath um, to resume and succeed with the negotiation to join the European Economic Community, as then was now the forerunner of the European Union, with the idea that Britain is showing what a crucial role it plays in terms of its NATO commitments. Mm, well, that's a very interesting line of inquiry, which we will perhaps explore another time. I wonder if I could just um, tempt you into a counterfactual and that is in 1967, there were uh, major strikes, disturbances, riots in Hong Kong, which were directly instigated and inspired by the uh, Chinese Communist Party as a way of destabilizing or at least probing the British position there. If they had continued and intensified and, and Beijing or, or Peking, as it then was, had decided to invade Hong Kong on that pretext in 1967. Would the British armed forces have been in any position to, to repel that attack? No. 
no, they wouldn't have been. Um, I mean, obviously, what one's looking here at is the notion of a trigger. I mean, you might say similar to today in terms of NATO forces in Estonia threatened by uh, Russia, unless you were to go very rapidly nuclear, it's very unclear what you could do in these circumstances. On the other hand, the notion is that by having a force there, that what you are doing is forcing, sorry, obliging the other side to take a step that it might not be willing to do, because ultimately the British authorities were able to suppress dissent within um, uh, Hong Kong, and the Chinese government very wisely, given um, that it probably had enough problems at that stage, you're talking of the Cultural Revolution period, uh, decided not to add another one to it. But if the Chinese government had sent a significant force, it would have been very difficult for the British to do much about it. How important was uh, the aid and emergency in in looking at this wider uh, uh, global role. And I'm thinking particularly of uh, the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy is still in that region engaged in uh, anti-piracy activities. One of the reasons Britain had uh, a presence in, in Aden was precisely for that purpose, to keep the maritime arteries through to India and the Far East open. So we, we still have that role, but, but a role that doesn't involve having Aden. Was it a, um, perhaps a, a mistake to try and hold on to, to Aden, given that we could achieve the same results by different means without being involved in, in the, the riots and the Battle of Crater and, and uh, all the difficulties that the Aden emergency involved? Well, it's a good question, but I mean, although there'd been nationalist agitation from about 56, it only turns into revolt in 63 and the British get out in 67. So I, I you know, it's not hanging on for dear life like the, say, the Portuguese do in Angola, where I think the problem starts in 61 and they don't leave till 74, 75, or decide to leave in 74, go in 75. So, you know, they, I mean, the British, um, they deploy 19,000 men, so that's the majority of the army then allocated to maintaining um, the colonies. But the position is undermined really by the difficulty of sustaining local support, and in particular, the sort of both the federal regular army, which has British officers, proves unreliable. And in 67, the South Arabian police and the Aden armed police both rebel. Now, at that point, it becomes clear that the British have not got much they can, uh, they can bring to, unless they're going to significantly increase their military commitment there, which is not wise. I think it's fair to say that, again, if you read... Um, general histories of insurrection or counter-insurrection or accounts of the British Empire, blah, blah, blah. They will talk about that. What they often fail to do um, is think about the broader context. The broader context, of course, is who has intervened in North Yemen in 1962. The uh, Egypt intervened in 62, and by 65, 70,000 Egyptian troops were in what we would call have then called North Yemen, they called it Yemen, um, 
fighting on behalf of a radical Republican regime that had seized power in a coup, which was being opposed by whom? Any uh, idea? Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, which is backing the royalists. So in many respects, what the British are doing in Aden is actually fighting the National Liberation Front. The NLF is backed by Egypt. So really, one way to look at the British com commitment in South Yemen is it's a branch of this broader struggle, which is important to Britain in its effort to support conservative Arab regimes, particularly Saudi Arabia, Jordan, which it had come in and militarily intervened in assistance to in 58, Kuwait, which had militarily intervened, the British had militarily intervened in support of in 61, Oman, which it's soon to come in to support of, and in this case it's supporting both British allied sheikhs in the interior of South Yemen, but also um, Saudi Arabia. So that is part of the dimension to look at it. Now, one of the points that unravels is that um, the British pull out of Aden in 67. Um, what has happened in 67 that has made the situation much less threatening? The, uh, there's these uh, Six Days War. Correct. So in other words, once the Egyptians have been thrashed by the Israelis, what the Egyptians are proposing to do in southwest uh, Arabia, north and south Yemen, is actually of less consequence. Let's look at, at nationalism in Africa and particularly uh, the Mau Mau uprising, which began in 1952 and, and lasted eight years. It's, it's a, you know, a, 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 an ugly and brutal uprising with uh, lots of atrocities committed by the Mau Mau themselves, but also the spotlight is now increasingly on the, the anti-insurgency measures, including the Wazko incarceration that, that the British forces um, undertook. How would you summarize um, the fighting in Kenya during this period? Um. Well, a success for the British. I mean, well, you know, I mean, what exactly do you want me to say about it? I mean, the British proved they learnt the lessons um, eventually from Malaya. It took them a little while to do so. They developed an integrated system of command and control, which included the army, the police, the administration. Um, they deployed air power successfully from 53. Um, they... Uh, found a, you know, that collective punishment, large scale detentions, which reached a peak of the detention of just over 71,000 people by December 54. And remember, you know, they'd been following that sort of policy uh, in Malaya. Uh, they found it, it worked. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, there were nasty things that happened, but then insurgencies and counterinsurgencies do tend to be unpleasant. And um, I think, you know, I'm not sure that I would be tremendously happy at people um, uh, ignoring that effect, that extent. I mean, if you're looking, forget about uh, the imperial powers, once they've gone, I mean, if you think about the 1960s, the most brutal counterinsurgency 
um, in Africa is takes place by Africa, where the Nigerian government uses famine and is very brutal and conservative estimates of those who have died or who were killed um, are very high. I mean, you know, generally over a million, sometimes as much as two million. I think two million is going too high, but, you know, they're high. Now, I do not think it is attractive necessarily what the British did, uh, and I'm not defending it, but, you know, following guilty verdicts, the British hanged uh, 1,090 Kenyans. Now, you might take the view that's 1,090 too many. Many of them, of course, were murderers. Let's be clear about this. Um, you might take that view. Um, but I think if you were to consider um, history as a whole in the nature of counterinsurgency struggles um, in the 1950s and 60s, I'm not sure that that would be a terribly helpful analysis. How would you summarise the um, political and social atmosphere in which uh, British armed forces were engaged in these actions? Back in Britain, uh, would you say there was support, hostility or mostly indifference? Um, well, domestic public opinion was either largely supportive or apathetic, or at least not too critical. I mean, you do get parliamentary storms about a number of issues. Um, for example, the incarceration of um, uh, opponents in uh, Nyasaland, M Malawi, causes a parliamentary storm. Um, but I think it's fair to say that... Um, you're not dealing here with non-violent opposition. In other words, the Mau Mau is not a non-violent organization. And that therefore affects the way that people consider it, not least because you're in a society which still has the death penalty in Britain, and which is a society which after all is in the, um, uh, in the, in the shadows of most adults had lived through World War II, well, all adults had lived through World War II, most of them had served in it, and you've still got conscription. Um, so I think, I think it's fair to say that um, criticism um, is possibly less than most people now might anticipate. I mean, obviously, you know, there is the separate argument, which is an interesting argument, as to how effective, as you may know, I've done a book on a history, a global history of insurgency and counterinsurgency, and there are separate arguments about the effectiveness of anti-societal violence. So I mentioned how for AOKA and for the Mau Mau themselves. I mean, one of the whole points of terrorist organizations staging atrocities is to terrorize the civilian population into supporting them. <clears throat> and often that succeeds. Um, that then creates a problem for the counterinsurgency forces. And what you don't want to do is to consolidate civilian support uh, for the terrorists, but equally, um, you have to be able to be to to show that you're able to tackle the terrorists, and that is very difficult when they are not easy to distinguish, or not necessarily easy to distinguish. So you've got problems. I mean, in Kenya as a whole, uh, British policy had started off being, I think it's fair to say, quite brutal, um, beating people in order to produce confessions and witness killings 
certain amount of killing. You know, it was brutal. Um, and I think it's also notable. I mean, most people would agree that the British became more lenient from the summer of 1953 with an emphasis on amnesties and a growing will willingness to punish their own brutality or at least conspicuous brutality. So you could argue that that was effective and helping to bring it to a close, or you could say, actually, it's immaterial, um, that what brought it to a close was the willingness to actually use force, and which showed that one was part of the, going on being part of the equation. Well, in the next episode of Black's History Week, we're going to deal with uh, counter-terrorism measures not just closer to home, but at home in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, the Troubles in Northern Ireland will be our theme next week. Uh, but for now, Professor Jeremy Black, thank you very much indeed. Well, that's very kind and thank you very much. And I hope by next week, some of the listeners can read the Insurgency and Counterinsurgency book. Uh, that, that, you know, that might be of interest to them. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Professor Black. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.